Three years ago, I was living with my boyfriend Lowell in Chicago. But that city made me crazy, and one day I just couldn't take it anymore. Here's how Lowell remembers it. I mean, Chicago started to let you down right away. <laughs> you would go on these expeditions where you're super excited to explore a neighborhood, and you would come back all huffy about it because it wasn't that interesting. There wasn't anyone to talk to. It took you an hour and a half to get to the place that you were going. I forgot about that. <laughs> that happened quite regularly. So do you remember the moment I decided to leave? <laughs> when you told me you had to leave, it was basically, I'm going to have to leave soon, and there's not going to be a good reason for it. And I had to be okay with it. I left in March, and I stayed in a hostel in Seattle my first night here. I started working there the next day. I cleaned bathrooms for a few hours each day in exchange for a shared room with a bunk bed, while Lowell stayed in the Midwest. When you were living alone in Chicago after I'd left, like what sort of things changed for you? <laughs> I reverted to bachelor mode in a pretty big way. Well, I moved in with a, a roommate. We did guy things but we didn't talk to each other that much. It was fine. I don't know. I didn't have a very good time. I was still teaching, but I taught an 8 a.m. class. But then you were on West Coast time, and I wanted to talk to you at night, so I had to stay up super late talking to you. And then I would get, like, a couple hours of sleep and go teach. And then I would be too tired after teaching to, to do any work, so I would just go home and fall asleep or or be on the internet. It was bad. It was bad. I felt like I'd put everything on the line to move to Washington, but I also left Lowell confused about what was going on in a city that really sucked. So when I got a job here in Tacoma, I was absolutely going to make it work. I was going to like Tacoma no matter what, and I was gonna convince Lowell it was awesome here. I started this podcast as a way to get to know this place and I didn't have a clue how getting to know its stories would make me fall in love with it. Destiny and Grit has always been a project about a place, and I wanted to get to the bottom of what I was actually talking about. So recently, I spoke to Bill Cupinzi. He's an English professor at UPS who studies stories and place, and he thinks a lot about how they intersect. Place is space to which meaning is attached. So space is sort of the empty thing. Place is the, the thing that we connect to. Bill thinks stories are one of the things that make a place a place. And I totally get that. Take, for example, this place we are sitting in right now, the Antique Sandwich Company. This building was built in 1916 and started as a grocery store. The Antique has been here for 42 years. They were the first place to have an espresso machine in Tacoma. They don't use any sugar, but they go through 500 pounds of honey a month. That statue over there is nicknamed Columbo, and she was at the World's Fair in Chicago in 1892. Two of my friends wouldn't exist if it weren't for the antique, because their parents met here. And some believe this building has ghosts. Don't you like this place more now that you know all that? Sadly, places like this are disappearing, or as Bill would say, they're becoming spaces. The battle between place and space is like one of the great <laughs> moral battles of our, our time. 
So much of our places in both the United States and in the world are being converted to space. They're being converted like through the actions of really irresponsible capitalism to these kind of non-places where there's a Walmart and a you know, Chili's and whatever kind of, you know, um, generic franchise store that you can imagine, so that if someone were to drop you down in one of these spaces, you wouldn't be able to tell if you were in Des Moines or Oklahoma City, Houston, uh, anywhere. We in Tacoma are lucky to live in a place with such a strong history, but we've also inherited some major problems, a legacy of environmental pollution, some crumbling historic buildings, and neglected waterfronts. But all is not lost. Spaces that were formerly places can become places again if people connect to them, if certain aspects of the natural world are allowed to continue to exist or to recover themselves, if people continue to create and to share stories about these places, they can be reclaimed as being places. So I think that that's something that everybody can participate in in some way. I think what Bill is saying is that stories can save places, can make us enjoy places even more, and can help make places better. We don't always have control over what happens in our city, but we do have control over our stories and how loud we tell them. So tonight, we're talking about the stories we tell about Tacoma in poetry, in paint, in conversation. So here we go. You're listening to Destiny and Grit. I'm Whitney. Legends. Cheney Munson is a musician, and he's not from Tacoma. I live in New York. I live up in Harlem. I got to know about Cheney from his band. The band's name is Tacoma Narrows. Cheney took a physics class in college, and the teacher showed a video of the 1940 collapse of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge to demonstrate wave dynamics and aeroelastic flutter. Tacoma Bridge, Washington, opened only a few months ago, was built at a cost of over $6 million. But misfortune overtakes the great structure. These are some of the most amazing pictures ever recorded by a newsreel. The actual collapse of the world's third largest suspension bridge. When I saw the video, I got kind of obsessed with it. Like, I didn't think that that kind of thing was possible, for concrete to, to do that. Cheney did some research, and he found a drawing an artist had made of the bridge with a guy dancing on it as it fell. It's the picture that is now on the cover of the band's new album, Good Morning. What I like about the image of the guy dancing on the bridge, it sometimes reminds me, instead of responding to the inevitability of, of death with you know, indifference or depression, that the guy on the bridge is kind of like celebrating it. You know, my sister and my mom had passed away when I was younger. While 
it kind of completely tore tore me apart for years and years and years. As I got older, I you know I I constantly realize some of the really good things that came out of out of the experience of of them dying. Mostly viewing the world and our lives as something that will not last forever at all, and that you really take advantage of it. So Cheney has been thinking about this bridge in our backyard for years, but he'd never actually been to Tacoma until six months ago. I was doing a job in Seattle, and so I decided to kind of book my ticket for one extra day. And it felt like a really big deal to me that I was like really excited and almost like nervous to go to the bridge. He got a rental car and drove straight from Seattle to the bridge. I remember, one, it was difficult to find a place to park and ended up just kind of putting my flashers on on like the entrance ramp. You know, it struck me how big it was. There was like garbage on the side of the road, which was a little bit sad. It didn't necessarily live up to like the image I have of it in my head. Actually being there, like it, it made it too real. But it still felt like a really important moment for me. Cheney got back in his rental car and had no clue where else to go. The only place he could think of was the Tacoma Visitor Center downtown, which I've never been to, but I assume it's where they give tourists those local pamphlets for the zoo and coupons and things. It was a weekday. There wasn't many people around, and I went in there, and there was this guy, Keith. Um, He was, like, super kind and generous, and he happened to be, like, a musician, and he grew up in Tacoma. And we talked for a while, and we got along really well. I don't know Keith, but I'm glad that someone like him is repping Tacoma at the Visitor Center. Because people can change the whole feeling of a place. Made me feel a little bit more tied to the place. You know, I think if if Keith hadn't have been there, I think it would have felt like a pretty, pretty empty visit. I like thinking that people in the audience of the Tacoma Narrows shows go home, Google that video, and maybe form their first impression of our city. But I don't think Tacoma is best at first impressions. To really get its charm, you have to be willing to stay a little longer. 20 more minutes for the sun hits the shoreline. 19 minutes for you smile. 18 minutes for the train crosses that borderline 17 minutes for we die 16 minutes for we watch our last sunrise 15 minutes for we shine 14 minutes for we set back our watch a while minutes for we die. Chapter 2, Origin Stories. Jennifer Nguyen's parents were Vietnamese refugees who came to Tacoma after fleeing Vietnam in the 80s. They met at a refugee camp in the Philippines on the long journey to get here. Her dad was sponsored by a Tacoma family who helped them get on their feet, and Jennifer grew up hearing stories about life in Vietnam. When I was little, my mom always told me, be happy you're going to school. Do you want to work on a farm? Work with the cows and, and pick up their poo, you know? She would always tell me that. That's our, her main go-to story when we're not listening. She's like, you want to go to the cows? 
she would just tell me all these stories and and it's always like stayed in the back of my mind when I decided that I wanted to be a history major all her stories came forward and it just made me want to hold on to a part of myself as a teenager, Jennifer says she was always sitting with the old people while her sisters and cousins went off to hang out or play video games. She liked to listen to their stories, especially the ones from her mom. My favorite story is the process of coming to, going onto the boats. Someone told her to go onto the beaches that night. I always have like a visual when she tells me it, like she was on the sand and it was wet and she was hiding in the bushes. There was someone on the boat who came out and they flashed three lights and that's when people started running. And people were like all over the place just trying to get on. But my mom, she was able to get on the very first try so I, she was very lucky. But she said it was really difficult. Growing up, Jennifer saw her mom as the strongest woman ever who never cried. As she got older, she learned a little more here and there about her mom's life before coming here. And then when she wrote her college thesis paper on Vietnam, she got to interview her mom about her life. Jennifer says she didn't realize how much her mom had sacrificed until that moment, until she actually sat down and asked her about it. Okay. Um, my mommy, um, San ở đâu? San ở Việt Nam, Phú Yên. I was able to get like an in-depth knowledge of what it was like when she was in Vietnam when I realized, like, sorry, I always get really <laughs> emotional, but um, um, when I was able to talk to her and I started crying right away, like within two minutes, she went through a lot. Both my parents went through a lot to get to America and give me what, what they never had. Trước đó đi, trước 75 đi. Nhớ chiến tranh 75 đi. Okay. Chiến tranh năm 75. I don't think she enjoyed the process very much. Just because, like, um, to think back on everything that has hurt her is very traumatizing, I think. Especially when she was telling me about um, how she thought she was going to die on the boats and how she, like, tied herself with her sister just in case if they died, they would be together. While the interview brought up emotional memories for Jennifer's mom, it was a hard conversation for the both of them. I feel like the most difficult part was... Um, asking her questions that I knew was hard for her, and then being able to ask her the questions through tears. It's just kind of hard when you see someone you care about in that state. After the whole conversation was over and we were done recording, she kind of sighed, like out of relief. I think for her, she was like happy that I was able to to know her story. I think she was just relieved that she was able to talk about it because she doesn't really talk about it. I felt like I was closer to my mom. <laughs> After the recording and I turned everything off, she was like, oh, I have another story. So she was able to tell me more. And I was like, oh, let me turn it on. And she's like, no, no, no. That's just us talking to each other. Hearing her own family's story of struggle has made Jennifer more understanding of stories from beyond her community. I hear about this, the Syrian refugees. And my sisters and I, we always talk about how can we help? Like, what can we do? I was thinking, like, I wish I was like the woman who 
helped us in Tacoma, our family in Tacoma, and sponsor them and help them with resources and stuff like that. Everybody living in America are immigrants, and like to hear and to see people struggling with that today hurts me. Jennifer plans to hold on to the recording she made with her mom so that her future kids can hear it. It will also be archived at the UWT library as part of their community oral history project. I feel like it's always worth it for families that have immigrated from a different country to learn about their history and their culture. It's just important to hold on to your stories. Jennifer graduated last year from UWT with a degree in history. She now works in a library surrounded by stories. Chapter 3, Stories Told Live. Megan Sukies and her husband often joked about bodies being buried in the basement of their 1920 townhouse, the first condo building in Tacoma. But when they finally cracked the concrete for a remodeling job, they found something more dangerous. If I learned one thing from Scooby-Doo, it's that old houses hold great mysteries. And so when we moved into our old townhouse that is now closing in on 100 years, back in 2000, I felt confident I was going to uncover some great mystery. But by the time we made it to 2006, the best thing I had found in that house was a leather postcard from a 1907 Episcopal Church conference. I was devastated. And my husband tried to cheer me up. He said, you know, Megan, there could still be bodies in the basement. And I said, ooh, do you think so? He said, we can only hope. And lucky for us, we got a chance that year. We had just had a baby, and we were already thinking about having a second one. And since we live in a townhouse, we didn't really have the option of growing out or growing up. But we did have the option of digging deep. Our contractor said if he could dig down two feet in the basement, he could get us legal head height, and we could use the basement as living space. So they hauled in the sledgehammers and the jackhammers, and they went at that concrete floor for a week. And every night when we got home from work, my husband and I would tiptoe down the basement stairs, you know, like domestic Indiana Joneses, and we'd pick through the rubble, and I was hoping, you know, maybe a bone, maybe buried pirate treasure, trapdoor, hidden room, speakeasy kind of moonshine, I don't know, anything. Nothing. But then they started to dig. And I got a call at work from my contractor, and he said, we found something. And I said, bodies? <laughs> and he said, mm, I think this is worse than bodies. Worse than bodies? <laughs> I came running home and went down into the basement to discover a labyrinth underneath my house long, twisting, tunnel-like holes running the length of the house. Big ones, like big enough that I could have climbed inside and maybe crawled to some other fantasy realm with David Bowie. I don't know. I didn't go there. I did notice that one of the holes went directly underneath our chimney so that our chimney 
once exposed, we could see was only being held up by a few inches under the bricks on either side. And as I looked at these big, twisting, long, snaking tunnels, I remembered Frank Herbert is from Tacoma. Frank Herbert is the man who wrote the novel Dune. Dune is the science fiction novel about the planet where giant sandworms tunnel under the ground. And I wondered, did Frank Herbert know something about Tacoma? Could Dune have been based on actual events? Do we have sandworms underneath our home? Is that what these holes are? And my contractor didn't think so. And so I kept pondering the mystery. Could it be? Could it be? Could it be? Until he finally said, you know, it doesn't really matter. It just needs to be fixed. And it's a simple fix. You fill the holes. And for me, I just wanted my house to be stable again, and I wanted it fixed. So I said, fine, do whatever. They hauled in the dirt. They buried all that dirt in those holes. They tamped it down. They put down a concrete floor. They put in the framing. They put up the drywall. And then the rains came. And I had a new mystery in my basement. My labyrinth had become a wetlands, and there was water everywhere. Now, our basement had always been dry, and that's why we thought it would make sense to dig deep. It had been dry. It was no longer dry. And my contractor said, oh, I can fix that. And I said, you know, unless you have a rewind button so I can go back in time and sell this damn house, I don't think you can fix it. I felt so stupid for thinking this project could be an answer. I mean, it was kind of poetic in the beginning, like, we're going to dig down roots and we're going to plant ourselves in Tacoma. It did not occur to me that putting down roots also meant being stuck in the mud. And as I looked across my town, I saw all the things I had been trying so hard to ignore all those years. This town literally stinks. Our soil is full of arsenic. Our air is poisoned. Our history is based on environmental exploitation, genocide, racism, and some really lousy decisions by elected officials. And I'm stuck here. But then I found a guy who specialized in dry basements. That's all he did. And when I told him the problem, he said, you know, it sounds like those holes were doing you a favor. I mean, now that they're gone, the water has to go somewhere, and it was profound. It was obvious, but it felt profound to me because I had seen those open spaces as a liability, a, a destabilizing force in my life. I had seen them as a problem and something I wanted to get rid of, hide, not see, not have happen, pretend like it never existed. But in fact, those open spaces were the only things that were keeping our head above water. And so the guy fixed it. And his solution was putting the holes back. But strategically. So we didn't put it back underneath the chimney, and we didn't put it under load-bearing walls. But we carefully tracked out new holes that took all that water and drained it away from our house. And it worked. Ten years later, we've almost paid off the loan. Our houses stayed dry. We've put down roots in Tacoma, and I've seen a lot of those problems that drove me crazy get better. And we have those two kids now, and the other day, all four of us were down in the basement watching cartoons, and I looked at us all sitting in there together, 
And I realized my husband was right. There are bodies in the basement. Chapter four, walls. If I had a whole city block to tell a story, I have no idea what I would do. But David Long painted the mural you can see right now at 11th and Market, and I think it tells a very important story. Welcome, David. Thank you. So I thought I'd mess with you and, and have you uh, tell me exactly what the mural says, but I won't do that. Um, so I did want to let people know who haven't seen it just what it says or sort of describe it. Um, it's kind of a dark gray mural with colorful stylized text on it that says, how can a human be illegal? One mile from here is a for-profit immigration prison where over 1,000 people are denied basic rights every day. In 2014, over 1,000 detained people went on hunger strike. Their protest gained national attention. Since 2015, detainees have enacted hunger strikes in California, Texas, and Louisiana. If people behind bars can organize and affect change, what can we do from here? So I, the thing that I think is super awesome and interesting about the mural personally is that you're sort of using this very prominent space downtown to highlight something that maybe not everybody knows about, something that can feel like it's kind of hidden away in Tacoma. Like, you could certainly go about your day and not think about it. But if you come across this mural, you're kind of forced to think about it. So can you just start by telling us, like, how you conceived of this mural and how it came about and why you chose this topic for? For sure. Um, and that's exactly the, why I painted what I painted, where I painted it. Um, I, I did this piece as a participant of SpaceWorks Tacoma. Um, part of their Artscapes program. And every year for the last three years, they've uh, sent out an open call to artists and people have painted murals at the site. And when I applied last spring, I didn't know where, if I got a space, where it would be. And when they did tell me that I got a space and they told me it was at 11th and Market, um, I immediately abandoned the concepts that I had sent them in my application, which was to do a rather abstract, kind of vibrant mural, um, in order to use that space for um, to bring awareness to to this issue, it's the the detention center is right down the street, down 11th, across the bridge. Um, you make your first right and curve around the road, and there's the detention center, and it is quite out of the way. Uh, most people don't go to the port unless they work in the port or are going down Portland Ave, but that's not where the detention center is. So it's definitely uh, fairly invisible. Um, did you learn anything new or surprising about the detention center as you were planning the mural? Yeah, I hadn't done any work 
um, regarding that the detention center before. And when I thought about painting, you know, a mural about the detention center, I did, I reached out to uh, the resistance of Northwest Detention Center, who are an, an undocumented led group who've been organizing for a few years, and they're down there actually every Saturday uh, passing out information and showing support. And they've organized rallies and um, a lot of different, they've done a lot of different work. Um, so I did learn quite a bit from that process, and that was, you know, in order to do that responsibly, I had to, of course. Why did you think it was important to highlight the fact that the detention center is here? It's important because if we're not aware of what's happening in our town, then we have no way of deciding. Um, there's, it's we're just complicit without knowing about it, and so awareness is just like the first step, um, and that's that's. It seems like an opportunity to to make that first step. I mean, of course, there's a lot more after painting this, like or after having it up. There's a lot more that we need to do. It's the 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 center is still functioning. And when we talked earlier, you mentioned that this was kind of your first opportunity to incorporate sort of your values or a social statement into your art. Is that true? Yeah, I haven't done murals that have any direct consequence in the past. So this is definitely so first. How do you see this as like fitting into where you want to go as an artist or your evolution as an artist? Um, I mean, yeah, I guess at this point I see this as a, a direction that I'd like to go. I think I don't see my art practice as um, only having one facet. I'd like to do this, and I'd also like to continue to do abstract, drippy murals and vibrant work. Um, but I think, yeah, I'm, I'm just trying, I, I have been realizing what my skills are and how they can um, supplement or fortify the work that other people are doing and I I'm interested in in public art that isn't just one person's vision but is bouncing off of actions and um, hopefully you know inspiring other people to do things um, that are you know that have direct consequence and then like thinking about how you were gonna display your idea visually how did you come to decide on like using text, visual text, as opposed to more of a graphic or an image? Um, I chose to use text partly because that's what my practice has been a lot of, you know, up to this point I, I use uh, text and I do a lot of typography work. So that was just natural for me. But also I wanted to do a piece that was informational and yes, it's literal, um, which you know might not be thought-provoking in some ways, but it's also it's informational and it it really calls out very specifically what's happening. Um, if I were to to illustrate it in a picture, I don't think I could relay the same information. And what sort of reactions did you get from people? Most actually, most of the people that walked by um, were very supportive and thanked me. Um, and so, yeah, I guess in, in terms of people that walked by, a, a lot of people were really positive. Um, one person said, this is, a, this is commercial, this is an advertisement. I said, but what am I selling? 
Um, so there are some people who, who would prefer to see something decorative or something that isn't so um, bleak. I mean, aesthetically, like I kind of, I went for like almost an anti-aesthetic. Um, I went with a very commercial design scheme and um, I, I, that's the feeling that it has, you know, I think, which was intentional because it's, it's a, a bleak picture that we have with the detention center. And how did you come up with the text? Was that all you, or is that collaborative at all? Yeah, that was actually, that was collaborative. Um, I worked with Maru um, from, from the resistance group. Um, so we, we, we built the, the message together. Um, yeah. Did you, like, take anything away or learn anything that you would want to do in a, if you had a mural like that to do again? Well... What did I take away from it? Um, I would do, I would maybe use less text, <laughs> just try to hit on the point a little stronger. What? But um, it was difficult to incorporate so many words into the layout and still have it be engaging and have it be readable. I kind of like how they're like little asterisks and you could read more if you took more time with it. Like you can sort of read a different sentence each time you drive by it. I thought that was kind of cool. Thanks. And yeah, I mean, with, with a project like that where you can see it from far away, but then also it's on the sidewalk, so people will see it walking by. I, I tried to think about, you know, differences in scale for where you are in relation to the wall. Um, and then just personally, like, how do you feel about Tacoma as a place for artists? I think Tacoma is a great place for artists, partly because the cost of living is not very high. And so, like... I personally am able to work part-time and, and do freelance work and do my art projects outside of that. Um, also, the city has, you know, these revolving opportunities um, every year, and Spaceworks is a really great organization that, you know, creates a lot of great opportunities. So I think that because of that kind of support and because of a legacy in Tacoma of artists um, doing doing local, you know, based work, community-based work. Um, I think it's a great place. It doesn't, I don't think uh, it has the kind of recognition outside of Tacoma that, or I don't think artists get the kind of recognition that they might want, but that's, that's a conversation that I think is ongoing about Tacoma being overshadowed by Seattle or, you know, other cities close by. But. Will you stay here and continue to do art? Or will you that's, yeah, that's my plan right now. I'd like to be really nomadic, but we'll see what happens in the future. Are you working on anything at the moment we should know about? Um, no. <laughs> Stay tuned. I'm on the lookout. Stay tuned. Awesome. Well, I just the I wanted to say that I think it's really cool how you like at this moment while the mural's up, you can walk downtown and you can see like historic markers of things that we have in Tacoma to be proud of. But I think it's also important, like you said, to just be aware of the other side of things. And it's kind of like this mural I see as a counterpoint to sort of those like proud historic markers just to, to bring a little bit of realism to the situation. So, Right. And there is a little text that you left out when you read the piece, which is at the very top left at the very beginning of the mural. It says City of Destiny. And I'm trying to poke a little bit of fun at that. Um, one thing I learned just also to go back to another your earlier question about what I learned in the process is that um, people, people who have gone through that facility 
um, use Tacoma as a pseudonym for the detention center. And so people will get out and say, I got out of Tacoma, you know, when they go home. Um, and that really struck me when I learned that. Um, I, you know, that I wanted to bring that in. And so, yeah, this is the city of destiny. This is part of our picture. We're not all, you know, great legacy here, but our which Megan spoke a little bit about. <laughs> yeah, our destiny, your destiny, their destiny, everybody's destiny. Mm -hmm. Well, I really love the mural, and I really appreciate you coming to this weird experimental live podcast. So thank you so much, David. Thank you. My pleasure. This is beautiful. Chapter 5, Phone Calls, Poems, and Headlines. When I moved into my apartment in Hilltop, I didn't know that much about my new neighborhood or my new city. But you read things, you hear things. You might remember my mom's first impression of Tacoma from a previous episode. I think I looked it up on Wikipedia, just Tacoma, Washington, just to see what it was like. I didn't know the neighborhoods or anything then, but I just remember reading that a certain neighborhood was pretty, I guess it was mostly drug infested and that that caused crime. So whoever had written that, you know, that's what they stressed. I've enjoyed getting to be a part of life in Hilltop, living, gardening, drinking, and working there, talking to people and getting to know it better. But I don't know half of its stories. Some people look at Hilltop and see its future potential while others can only see how much it has already changed. Josh Reisberg, a Hilltop activist and writer, has lived there for 19 years. He wrote a piece called Gentrification about the changes he's seen in his neighborhood, and it starts with this. 911, where are you reporting? Hi, I have a disturbance at uh, 913 MLK Way. It's a uh, business, Hilltop Kitchen. Okay. Um, a group of uh, five, six gentlemen came in and they're yelling and they're screaming about, uh, they're trying to politically protest and they're disrupting my whole bar. It's, it's full and it's, they're obviously trying to make some political point. I need cops up here now. Okay. We got a call started. It was six white guys, black guys, Asian. Yeah, there's, there's one white guy, uh, there's, uh, I see four African, or I'm sorry, two white white males, four African Americans, and then one young lady. Okay, one and young white lady. how old about do they appear? What's that? Uh, they're uh, between 28 and 35, and now they're walking out the door right now. Okay, do you know what they were protesting? Yeah, uh, gentrification, they think that we're gentrifying the neighborhood. So they're 
you know, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit bigger issue. Any weapons seen? Uh, zero weapons, but they just came in there yelling. And I've lived on my block for 15 plus, <clears throat> nearly 20 years. In that time, I've never seen anyone murk out one of their peers. But in that same amount of time, I've seen the police murder more than a few who were unarmed at that. They were trying to cooperate, in fact. You see, I'm much more afraid of a police's taser or anger or banger than I am of my neighbor. My current block watch never stopped cops, cops, cops killing, cops killing civilians. That's become like a sport. Down the street, they murdered a man standing on his own front porch. But my street has these new neighbors trying to change the original neighbors' behaviors. They are saltines and mayonnaise uncomfortable with flavors. What's the real goals and mission of the Hilltop Action Coalition? Gentrification is colonization. The folks you're trying to push out have been there since their great-grandparents' generation. New neighbors meet under the banner of crime prevention, but their deep down selfish xenophobes only concerned with their own children. Do their liberal hearts bleed when they put up those signs in their front yard that read, no crime on this street? Well, that level of understanding is incomplete. That level of understanding lies in them understanding lies. Fail to realize some residents and neighborhoods have been demonized. They don't want to live next to a halfway house because they claim that their child's safety is paramount. But I never hear them complaining about the brothel down the street where those other young women are forced to massage feet. Oh, it's cool because white guys go there a lot and they're quiet. Their cars don't blare loud hip hop so they don't have to seem a problem with that bullshit on their block. They'd rather sit at home, wring their hands, and worry about sex offenders than give the homeless family in the alley a blanket for the winter. So the city begins to displace, change the neighborhood's face. Local institutions displaced, no more African marketplace. In Dugu Henderson and Know Thyself, now replaced by a place where you can fix bicycles yourself. Now Mr. Henderson paid $600 a month in rent. But then when the city bought up the whole block, rent got upped a bit. Now all of a sudden it's $2,500 a month just to be a tenant. So Mr. Henderson had to pack up and get moving. But then they charged the very same owner of that building $1 a month to move in. Was it economic redistribution? We see what you're doing. We see through the illusion. You pushed out black businesses. You put new white ones inside. We called it SpaceWorks. It was a disguise. And the SpaceWorks businesses thrive. Why? Because they're highly government subsidized. I think back to my old neighborhood and I miss it. Wish some of these new neighbors would stop trying to make it the Proctor District. The same neighborhoods that the same neighbors that never spent one minute in the community garden are the same neighbors that are barking and alarming at the community meeting. To all my hipster neighbors, y'all are welcome to move in, but understand we are economic redistribution, not part of the solution. Take from the poor, that's how we get rich. Understand we still benefit off this privilege. You can't 253 heart shit safety all over the city. You can't 253 heart shit city on, and, and claim you love the gritty. It's bougie to me. So I ask you for your insight. What is your neighborhood like?
I love how Josh is unafraid to speak his mind and stand up for Hilltop. I met him at a Black Lives Matter event, and he was totally unafraid of my microphone. But I know his work can rile some people up. I'm thinking of one online comment thread about the true nature of Hilltop. It included mentions of churches, mosques, barbershops, bars, important rap, the Crips, Japanese internment, not walking on Mrs. Norwood's lawn, Hilltop hip hop, Rodney King, do your research, poverty, white guys with beards, gun violence, Mr. Rogers, the role of art, Jim Crow laws, police harassment, privilege, the definition of progress, community, fear, and the race problem in America. Hilltop is complicated. I've started to think the more you learn about somewhere, the harder it becomes to wrap your head around. A place is so many things to so many people. Because other people look at Hilltop and see progress after years of notorious violence. I see a neighborhood I lucked into that allowed me to meet awesome people and feel at home in Tacoma. My friend Tara is also a recent transplant to Tacoma. Tara Brown, curious citizen, fan of libraries, small business owner. When she ran into some of these kinds of conversations online, she realized that she knew nothing about Hilltop's history except what she heard from random people. I, I moved here a year ago. Most of the people I know aren't from here, and I love it. But there's something missing there, which is that I don't know a lot of people who were here in 1993. It's a different perspective being from a place like, I don't feel like I understand Tacoma in this essential way. I went with Tara to the Northwest Room, the archive of Tacoma history at the library. And in a manila folder labeled Tacoma Neighborhoods Hilltop, we found that newspaper headlines stacked together can paint their own picture of a place. Members of Boy Scout Troop 39 are making plans to transform several vacant lots in the gardens. This is from the 1960s, but it, it seems like I could, I could read that in the newspaper today and not think anything of it. November 10th. 2015, three charged in fatal Hilltop shooting. August 24th, 2015, Hilltop Street Fair helps redeem Tacoma's most maligned neighborhood. December 3rd, 2009, Hilltop Boys for Renaissance. May 28th, 2006, Hilltop Revival Realized. May 28th, 2005, Hilltop Violence Words Residence. A part of why I wanted to come to the library is because I've heard a lot of stories about Tacoma, um, the 80s and 90s, but I also know that people tell stories that are bigger than the ones that are true. The way that you tell stories changes, so I was sort of curious about like the way that Tacomans were talking about Tacoma in 1993, not the way that they talk about 1993 now. June 2nd, 1993, residents of the hilltop write it in stone, all lives are precious. July 19th, 1990, deaths don't kill optimism on hilltop. April 8th, 1990, Christian bikers take on evil on hilltop. March 15th, 1990, gunshots fired in hilltop as fix-up plans announced. Looking at the headlines through time, I mean, I, I sort of, or a lot of the stories we read were sort of like, there's this, there's sort of negative things happening on health, there's a lot of problems, but there's also people who are here who are really dedicated to making this neighborhood a really good place to live. And those people have been there, 
the whole time. It's not like in 2015, it just occurred to someone like, hey, we should make Hilltop awesome. Like there have been people who have been living there and trying to make Hilltop like as good as it can be. There have been people who care about Tacoma and who care about Hilltop here all along. October 16, 1989, women bond together to reclaim Hilltop for their children. December 13, 1988, activists see hope in Hilltop's ruins. August 30th, 1988, drive-by shooting on Hilltop bears gain trademarks. August 29th, 1987, anti-crime Hilltop rally tackles thugs. July 7th, 1977, build, don't demolish, Hilltoppers to ask. February 1st, 1971, Hilltop Residents Organized Minority Concerns Task Force. The truth is complicated, I guess. Uh, all I'll ever really be able to like fully understand is my own experience here, which has been so positive. I mean, Tacoma is a complex, beautiful, like really interesting place and has been long before I sort of took notice. But I'm really excited to like be a part of that. August 19th, 1969, second night of shooting, turmoil sees 22 arrested. August 17th, 1969, special police order, make Hilltop friends. June 12th, 1968, college students seek racial understanding in Hilltop area. May 7th, 1964, Boy Scout band to lead Hilltop alley cleanup. Chapter 6, Tunes. Forrest Butel has been playing music here for the last six years. When I first asked him if he'd written anything about Tacoma, he said no. But apparently, he was wrong. Yes, I was wrong. <clears throat> that was a lie. Not a bold-faced lie, didn't do it on purpose, but... Um, yeah, this is a song that I wrote about a place in Tacoma that was near and dear to my heart when I first moved here seven years ago. Uh, and the interesting thing about this song is that the first time I performed it was here on this stage at the open mic they have here on Tuesday nights at Antique Sandwich Company. Um, that's when I first started playing music in front of people, or start, first started singing in front of people. It's called The Laundromat Boogie. Sunday morning comes and I got nothing left to wear Well, I scrape up all my quarters and my dirty underwear And I pack them in my car Even if I'm feeling beaten, then I head on to the corner Down at 6 and Proctor Street, that's where I boogie It's where I woogie I do the laundry Madden boogie, baby Every other week They rinse, they spin, then they do it all again And when I move them to the dryer I do it with a grin because I know by tomorrow I'll be smelling fresh and all the girls down at the market will be liking me the best and then we'll boogie, when we'll woogie, 
We'll get soapy and I'll wet your lavin' night you won't forget. I guess I probably should have been booking about a week or two ago. When I get to the mat, it's a quarter past eight. I say to the lady, well, I'm sorry that I'm late. And she gives me one whiff. I go stiff. She says, this one's on me. It's your Christmas gift. And then we boogie and we woogie. You know, we gave each other a personal pre-soaking when the soap came out. Well, she darn near choked. I love it when I'm sitting in a bar and I overhear someone say, the thing about Tacoma is, people love talking about Tacoma. It's the character we want to see succeed in the end, but it's also the setting for so many people's stories. I met Jaden, who was helping out at the Hilltop Street Fair. He was at a booth for Write at 253, a Hilltop Writing Center, and he told me about a story he wrote. It was called Acorn Warriors. About uh, evil squirrels versing acorns. One acorn, it has hypnotonic powers and it was hypnotizing um, the chipmunks. They have like little mini pistols that shoot out bark. It doesn't make it bleed, it just, it feels like a pinch even though it's not sharp. It's like just a, a piece of bark. I'm not done with tears, I only made book one and said, to be continued. I think stories are cool because they bring you to places that aren't real, but places that uh, are in books. Why do you think it's cool to go to places that aren't real? Be because it's a place uh, nobody's ever been to. Then on Pacific Avenue, I ran into Anthony one day in front of UWT. He was selling poems for donations, and I asked him if he had one about Tacoma, and he instantly gave me this. It's the beautiful life that we live amongst the city with so much history, with the gateway of the Northwest allowing us to live amongst the waters of the Puget Sound, knowing that the railroads allowed us to get to anywhere we needed to be, because knowing that these crossroads seem to be made of that one railroad spike of gold, one that will allow us to share the sunshine and even the beautiful hues amongst Mount Rainier, the look amongst the snow-capped mountain that seems to be so majestic that it could be seen from anywhere, allowing us to grace the space to realize that the military station seemed to bring life and more abundance. But knowing that the joys that we share together would allow our heartbeats to see that there's no place in the world like Tacoma. I've been freestyling this since 2001. I've been writing poetry since I was 16, but I just started coming out here. Some people like it. Some people tell me to get a job, and I tell them that's the reason why I'm out here, so I can't get enough to get my ORCA card and be able to find a job, you know? 
If you can't already tell, I can get really nerdy about place and stories. But I think it's really important stuff. Remember Bill, the UPS professor? He says telling stories is the thing that makes us human, and that you can't have a story without a place. They're inseparable. I think that recognizing and affirming our connection to place and cherishing that place through taking care of it and telling stories about it and connecting with other people within those places, I, th I think might kind of be the reason that we're all here. After I left Chicago, I spent nine months actively trying to find a home in Washington. I lived in six different places between Olympia and Seattle. I applied for dozens of jobs. When my two remaining grandparents passed away, I had to travel to the East Coast for two funerals in three months. I'd call Lowell and try to remember why I was 2,000 miles away. I felt helpless and homesick for nowhere in particular. Someone told me I was in the throes of my Saturn return. But I'd step outside and remember why I was here. I'd run in the woods at Point Defiance and inhale the smell of wet earth. I'd gasp every time I crested a hill and Mount Rainier appeared. I'd see moss growing in sidewalk cracks. I discovered phosphorescence. I learned that blackberries were weeds, and I still don't believe it. <laughs> then suddenly I got a job. Lowell moved west and brought my boxes of cookbooks and winter clothes, and we found a place to live. I don't know how long I'll be able to stay in Tacoma, but for now, it's home. And I can't wait to see what happens next. Music for this episode by Tacoma's own awesome Forrest Butel. You also heard the song New York Armageddon from Tacoma Narrows. Doug Mackey has been gracefully running sound. Thank you to our live guests, Megan Sukies, Josh Reisberg, and David Long. I want to send an extra special thanks for this live episode to the Tacoma Arts Commission, the Northwest Room at the Main Library, Tammy Harridge and the staff of the Antique Sandwich Company, and Lowell Wise. This is Destiny and Grit. We're at destinyandgrit.com. Thank you for coming and for listening. I'm Whitney.